Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Manor, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. Matthew chapter 6 verses 9 through 13. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil." grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his big book on studies on the Sermon on the Mount, which is just a collection of his sermons, he says this, he says, there is nothing that tells the truth about us as a Christian people so much as our prayer life. Everything we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer. Everything we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer. And he goes on to talk about the idea of, even in this example of almsgiving or giving to the needy, and then we're going to look at fasting next where Jesus goes. Those are all very tangible things to put your hands upon. It's it's easy in one sense, though you are parting with your money, but to give to the needy, it's an act you can do. You, You plan it, you start it, you finish it, it's done. Uh, even fasting, there's a start date, there's an end date, you, you, you uh, abstain from something. Um, but prayer is this whole other issue. And Lloyd-Jones, I think he really is on to something when he talks about this reality. Everything we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer. It's just a challenge to be dedicated, to be consistent in prayer. There is something unique and uniquely difficult about the issue of prayer, of Christian prayer. And so Jesus, you know, in this section, it it is interesting, right? If you look at just the layout of these first 18 verses of chapter 6, there's the three uh, religious observations that he goes through, the giving of alms, giving to the needy, praying, and then fasting. But he takes extra time here in talking about Christian prayer and lays out, so then this is how you should pray. Don't pray like the hypocrites, right? Who go on loud on the street corner so that everybody can see them. Or who go, or the Gentiles who pray with a lot of words as though to be impressive. Pray in your room, in your secret, and the Father who sees you in secret will reward you. And then also he expounds. Pray then like this. He gives a further teaching on how to pray. And my prayer this morning is that as we look at this, that God would just would give us receiving hearts that we might be people of honest and meaningful prayer. That's part of what he's going at with the, 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 the hypocrisy of the whole section, that we don't want to be performance-based in our prayers, trying to impress people. This is not a prohibition on public prayers. We know that from many other places in Scripture where Jesus himself prays in public, in the hearing of other people, but it is a, it's a prohibition against vain prayer or false prayer. And so at one level, when we come to something like the Lord's Prayer, we have to answer this question about what are we to do 
when it comes to vain repetitions, right? That's what he says earlier in the text. Uh, Do not heap up empty phrases or vain repetitions. What are we to do about vain repetition in religious duty? Because we have, for an example, take something like this statement that I say every week. Andrew's in the nursery because he could finish it for him. But you all could, right? I say the grass withers and the flowers, but God stands forever. Sorry to mean to exclude those of you who didn't know it. But every week, I re- after I say the scripture, I recite Isaiah 40, verse 8, or 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 24. Because of the impact that verse really has had upon my own life, this reality that we are the grass. We could do a whole study. We're not going to do that this morning. We are the grass. We're the flower fading. But there is something firm that we can stand upon, and it is God's word. Uh, verbum domini manet in eternum is the Latin phrase. The word of God endures forever. How do we keep that from becoming just vain repetition? Right? That is a real concern. That, and, and I bring this up because many of you were raised in a tradition. I was raised in a tradition. And I don't actually hate the tradition where you recited the Lord's Prayer every Sunday. And then as a kid, you had the Lord's Prayer memorized. And so when we look at the Lord's Prayer, when we look at something like this, is, what do we do with vain repetition? So Jesus says, pray then like this. And so just at a very practical level, how do we handle this? Do we memorize the Lord's Prayer? Well, then, what, then won't I just be vainly repeating just the words over and over again? Possibly is the answer to that. I can say the grass withers, the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. I can say that as just a vain repetition. You can recite the Lord's Prayer, and you probably would know of people, maybe know of your own heart at times, that you've been in church and recited the Lord's Prayer and meant nothing by it. However, we could do that with any sort of religious practice of this type. I'm big on Bible memorization, wanting to memorize even large sections of Scripture. And so is the warning, is the danger of vain repetition, is that enough to say, you know, we we are careful to not use these words because we don't want to get into vain repetition? Well, that that may be a possibility, but... um, you, you have to ask something like, I'd make the argument for, um, there is something to be said for using the Lord's Prayer, yes, as just recited as it is, and as a template for prayer. Historically, the church has used um, this section of the Lord's Prayer as a template for its teaching. If you take out a catechism of, from the Reformed tradition, uh, you will find them going through the Apostles' Creed, the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, and they'll work through it section by section to just talk about, uh, to just teach on prayer. Martin Luther uh, has, a, it's a kid's book, but that's really good, put out by Ligonier, but it's, it's a true story of his barber um, was going to get his hair cut, and, if, and uh, the barber was asking him, well, teach me how to pray. And so Luther teaches him that the way that he prayed every day, essentially, was that he prayed through the Lord's Prayer. He had it memorized, and he'd start with the first admonition, and then he'd kind of fill it in. And he'd go to the second uh, petition, and then he'd fill it in. Go to the third petition, pray it, and then fill it in. And then pray as long as he felt necessary. He might get stuck on the second petition, or whatever it may be. But working through the Lord's Prayer line by line. 
So it is a concern with all religious activity that they just become rudimentary, just a practice you do over and over again. However, the answer is not to abandon these activities, but to do serious heart work. That when I do these things, when I partake, you could make the argument that you showing up here on a Sunday morning is just a religious practice that you can do totally devoid of any meaning for your life whatsoever. (laughs) That you're just showing up because it's what you do, it's what you think you should do. You don't have a heart for Jesus. You don't love his word. You're just trying to do the, the, the right thing in front of you, which is commendable at some level, but it doesn't really move the needle. So you could then say, make the argument, well, then just don't come to church if you don't mean it. Well, I would say maybe come to church and mean it. <laughs> like maybe do both. Maybe do, maybe do both. You don't just stop eating because the food no longer tastes good or what. You know, like, well, this isn't, it isn't my thing, so I'm just going to stop eating. Or it doesn't have the, you don't feel like it. Even in those moments where, you know, we've all gone through various difficulties in life where food isn't appealing to you, grief or whatever it may be, you know, I've got to, I got to keep this, I need to keep this thing up. So I would encourage that in the same way, prayer is critical to Christian survival. So encourage you to do both. Yes, memorize the Lord's Prayer. Yes, at times in prayer, pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. And, and use that as a template, yes, to say it verbatim, but then also as a general outline for your own prayer. Do it both. But work hard to do it with a heart that is seeking to genuinely and authentically connect with your God and Savior. So I just want to kind of get that out of the way to say this is how I think it's best handled. Not just said out of repetition, which is the warning we have, but also it's totally okay. Jesus uses these words and says, when you pray, and Luke, he actually says it this way, when you pray, say, and has these words laid out. And so then using it as a template of our prayer. So then as we dig into the actual text here, I don't know that there's going to be anything new or revolutionary brought to you out of this prayer. Um, But I don't think that's the point. Jesus is saying, Christianity 101, pray like this. This is how when you go to God, this is what your words should sound like. It is a call to the basics of Christianity. Christians pray. And the first thing I want to notice here, he says, verse 9, pray then like this, our Father. Now, this isn't one of the petitions, but Jim mentioned this last week, and it's so critical that this prayer towards God, we pray to God because through faith in Christ, we now are adopted into God's family, and we have Him as Father. You notice in this section, time and again, your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. We pray, our Father, because your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And Jesus really just goes over the top with this, communicating this concept of God as Father. Not distant, uh, aloof deity that we don't really have any way to communicate with, but in this familial way of Father. There's something incredible about the position of addressing God as Father. Not just as Creator, though He is that, but as Father. This is something that only those who are his, or who are in his favor through the work of Jesus Christ, 
through faith in the message of the gospel, by adoption into his family, can truly call God. If God has opened your eyes, God has has broken your heart of stone and given you a heart of flesh, such that you see the reality of your deep need as a sinner for salvation, and you have looked to Christ and have heard the gospel declaration that what Christ has done is he's lived the righteous life you should have lived, died the death that you deserve, raised in victory over sin and death so that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord can be saved, so that you can be saved, delivered out of your sin, out from under the condemnation of death and hell into into His family and given the promise of an eternal glorious future with Him. If you've seen that and are embracing that, not only is that just some like, scientific, like, well, okay, now this, now this, now this, you are officially saved. You are actually brought into the family of God such that your posture towards Him when you pray is not one of appeasing some, again, some uh, Greek deity where you're trying to, you know, whatever, impress them. It's your Father in heaven. Through faith in Christ, you have a Father who loves you, who cares for you, who cares about your needs. As a kid who has good relationships with his or her father in the same way, you can be happy and eager that prayer is speaking to your father about your needs, about your concerns, about what's going on. Maybe you've had a good relationship with your dad, and you can think, it's like that. Or maybe you've had a bad relationship with your dad. Just think, it's better than that. It's the polar opposite. Where my father failed, this father does not. Where my father succeeded, this father is even better. And we approach him as a father. At some level, this, I, I think that much of our struggles with prayer could be wiped away with just a refreshing on that simple reality. Why would you not go to your father for whatever you need. Why would you not address your father? Why would you not go to the one who cares for you, who loves you, who wants the best for you? Why would you not go to him? It's just foolishness at some level and arrogance at some level. I mean, I could go back in my history and talk about the times I didn't go to my parents were normally not because they were so bad, but because I was so arrogant and wanted to do it myself (laughs) and not need help. Why would you not go to this father? You are his, if you are in Christ, you are his child. He cares for you. And as Hebrews chapter 4, 16 says, because Jesus, because of him, we ought to boldly approach our Father's throne. So that's not even the petition. <laughs> that's not even the first petition. That's just a posturing of our Father. And from there, I want to think about this. Prayer is something to be learned. Jesus doesn't just say, Do whatever you want and pray. You should pray. He says, no, there is something to be learned. There is a way, a specific way that we should pray. It isn't just say whatever you want. There is some content to his teaching on how to pray. I think he does this because it is not our natural impulse to pray this way. This is not the way we would choose to pray. We would not choose to pray this way because, first, we are generally self-reliant. We wouldn't even choose to pray. We are very self-reliant people. We want to do it our way. We want to do it uh, by our own strength. We want to feel our own power. When you pray, you admit you need help. And we don't like to do that. 
We like to think we have it all together. We like to think we can handle it ourselves. But prayer is a confession. I need someone outside of me to help me. I am reliant on more than myself. We don't pray. We need to pray this way because we're generally self-reliant. Secondly, because we generally think we know what we need best. We'll get into the content of this passage. Why Jesus has to teach us to pray this way is because we generally think that we know best what we need. And thirdly, because we are sinfully self-interested and self-obsessed. And so Jesus has to teach us, no, no, no. This is how you ought to pray. If you're left to your own devices, who knows where you will go? This is the way to pray for your ultimate good. I think this is likely why Lloyd-Jones says that prayer is so difficult. And it's why the prayer begins as it does. John Calvin notes, a great reformer, he notes the similarity with the Ten Commandments and the Lord's Prayer. The Ten Commandments is broken into two tablets, right? You have the tablet of, of how to live before God, and then the last six of how to live before your neighbor. There's a vertical component and then kind of a horizontal component. And the Lord's Prayer is broken out in the same way. There's a vertical component. There's a prayer towards God, and then there's a prayer towards our horizontal realities. There's a clear first table that deals with our Godward stances, and then a second table that has to do with our neighbor and the things of this life. This prayer teaches us, and I'm going to look at three things in the remainder of our time here this morning. This prayer teaches us three things. Firstly, to be confident in our Father's place as transcendent over the world. This prayer teaches us to live for His glory in this world, and it teaches us to seek His purposes for the world. Three things. Confident, trusting God's transcendence over the world, to live for His glory in this world and to seek His purpose for the world. So we've talked about our Father. Now we're going to get all the way into the next two words in heaven. <laughs> Sorry, this is the pace here is real slow. I get that. Uh, we'll, we'll speed up a little bit. Uh, our Father who art in heaven. If you were raised Methodist, our Father who art in heaven. There's this. It's not, again, we're not, I haven't even made it to the first petition, but there are times that when I pray, recite the Lord's Prayer, when I'm out walking around, I, I don't get, sometimes I don't get past this. When you have a need, when something's going on, and you begin your prayer, my Father who is in heaven. It just seems so important for our entire posture towards prayer. Just this reminder brings loads of help to our hearts. We seek God, we turn to Him because He alone has the perspective that we desperately need. He is not stuck down here in all of the trials and all the difficulty and all the struggle that we are. He is above it all. He is our Father. And where is He? In heaven. He's transcendent. He is above it all. And oftentimes what you need most when you're in the middle of a trial or of a difficulty or a confusing situation, you have to call in somebody from outside, right? And you got to say, you know, this is going on. I need an objective perspective. Help me see what's going on. I need a voice. I'm so stuck in my own self, in my own thinking, in my own trials and discouragements and difficulties and just thought process. I need someone outside of the situation to help me. Well, God is the ultimate one uh, with the transcendent position who knows all things, sees all things, is over all things. And so when we go to him to prayer, it isn't like, well, God, I 
not sure you can do much about this, or God, I'm not sure you've heard about this. Anything <laughs> like that. It's our Father who is in heaven. He is transcendent over all things. We have a God who resides in heaven, not down here in the muck and the mire and the confusion of this world. Sure, He is omnipresent so that He is everywhere, but outside of us in a very real and substantial way. We make our appeals to Him because He is in heaven. He is over it all and He is above it all. He has a perspective that we don't have. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the author, the perfecter of our faith. And so because of this, our, this prayer teaches us to have at that very base, before we even bring a petition, a reminder of the one that we're talking to. He's over it all. And there's a rejoicing confidence that our God is independent. That's, a, that's actually a theological term to talk about the independence of God. He's not dependent upon anything. He alone is the independent one. And so we go to him because he is independent and therefore able to see clearly and offer true help. So we pray, our Father in heaven. And then we come to the first petition, which says, hallowed be thy name. This officially, as the first petition, is the Christian who then is rejoicing in God's transcendence. What do they make their first priority? Our Father who is in heaven. What I want, what's top of my list of what I want. What is top of your list of what you want? What does Jesus teach should be the top of the list of what we want? Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed is, you know, it's like, we don't, do we hallow anything? (laughs) We we use that word, I'm trying to think of a context in which we use the word hallow something. It's It's God, may your name be holy. May your name be glorified. It isn't may you be holy. God is holy. So it isn't like, God, I pray you'd be holy. No, it's, God, I pray that your holiness would be recognized. I pray that in my life, in this world, my primary objective is that you be glorified. That's why our mission statement starts out with, we exist to glorify God. There's a prayer that comes along with that mission statement, which is, God, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. May you be glorified. What I want more than anything is that you would be honored, you'd be glorified, you'd be magnified above all else. This is a reset of our priorities when we go into prayer. We come loaded with burdens, loaded with concerns, and it's a readjustment. My God who is in heaven, I've got all these things going on, but above them all, my chief desire is that in whatever you do, may you be honored, may you be glorified, may you be magnified. It is to give him the weightiest place in your life. It is to live recognizing that he is the one who matters most. Why do we have to be taught this? Our natural inclination is for our own defense and for our own glory. But when this becomes the driving force of a life, uh, when, the, when the, uh, the glorification of self, when it becomes the driving force of a life, it is a narcissistic dead end road. Jesus is training us to care about the glory of God and that when properly recognized will give life to the world and we don't have time to go down that. That actually is for our greatest good. That God would be most glorified in us because his glory is tied up with our own joy. So hallowed be thy name and then we're just going to take the last, these next two petitions all as one. Your kingdom come, your will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. This prayer teaches us to be confident in our Father's transcendent place over all the world, living for His glory. He's just to live for His glory in the world, and it teaches us to seek His purpose for the world. The Christian praying this concedes that of next importance under His glory, of, of equal importance, is that God's plan and His purpose and the achievement of His will is what is ultimate in our concern. Jesus prays this way, right? He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says, if this cup can pass from me, then that, let's do that. Nevertheless, not, as, not my will be done, but yours. Which is a very fascinating thing to think about. But there is this prayer of that God, more than I want my own comfort, my own way, my whatever, I want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's a right posturing of our hearts towards God, the God that exists. There's this fundamental building block laid down here for the good of our souls. How many, how many marriages that are prayed for would be saved if they picked up this prayer? God, your will be done. Not, not let me get my way in my marriage, but God, why don't you get your way here? Uh, how many relationships would be would be mended and resolved if you began to pray, God, your will. How many conflicts would get totally wiped out if we began to pray, Father, I want, in whatever this situation is, I want you to be glorified and I want your will to be done. And that might mean my will dies. That might mean my desire for this thing takes second place or goes away. That what I want more than anything is for you to be glorified, for your will to be done, because I know that as my Father who is in heaven, you're transcendent over all things, and you're working for the ultimate good of your kids. And so I put myself aside, and I say, Father, you be glorified. Your will be done, because I know that it is for my ultimate good. We are taught this because our natural impulse is to use prayer to try and simply get life our way. Now, we will next week get into the horizontal prayers. So it does, we do get into then the laying out of our petitions of Daily bread, forgiving our debts, not being led to temptation. But it all starts off with this focus. Jesus is training us to care for not our way, but the best way, his way. So it's a reality check. Jesus is for your ultimate good. He's for your ultimate good. I would even venture to say, Jesus wants you happy. (laughs) He wants you happy in Him. He wants your life to be supremely joyful. I know the world is out there placarding for us joys and joys and joys. And our own minds begins, I'd be happy here. I'd be, I'd be glad if this happened. And we've got all sorts of things that we lay out for what makes us happy. But Jesus is after, not, we don't come to church to kill joy. <laughs> We come to church to maximize our ultimate joy in Jesus. And so when we pray these prayers, we are praying, Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because when I know that you get what you want, that's what's best for me. And that's what is for my greatest joy. So when it comes to seeking him, what he teaches us ought to be what, what does he teach us ought to be first in our concerns for our greatest happiness in him? A recognition of his greatness, our Father in heaven. A concern for the magnification of his worth and a desire for his 
will to be done. There are so many different implications and applications you could take out of a text like this, but as we close, if you are God's through faith in Christ, you have a Father who loves you and wants to hear from you. I mean, if that's all you really take away, I'm okay with that. That you can walk out of these doors and when it comes to your prayer life, if you have repented of your sins and you're trusting in Christ alone for the salvation of your life, for the securing of your eternal future with Him, God now, His disposition towards you is not one of wrath, but of love and of favor. You have a Father who wants to hear from you. Maybe your, maybe your first prayer should be for eyes. God, help me to see you for who you are. Maybe I've got a bad view. I, my prayer life struggles and suffers because I don't see God for who he really is. God, open my eyes that I might see you for who you really are. Prayer, secondly, is not just a means to lay out your request, but it is an opportunity for the realigning of your own heart on what really matters. We don't have perspective, but we know the one who does. And thirdly, an application, God cares for you. And to put your purposes first will fail you, but God will not. Putting his purposes first, that will not fail you or will not fail to bring you your ultimate joy. If we make our search for his glory and for his will to be done, that is what secures his people's ultimate joy as he watches out and watches over them. Lloyd-Jones says this, the highest picture that you can ever have of man, humanity, is to look at him on his knees waiting upon God. That is the highest achievement of man. It is his noblest activity. Man is never greater than when he is there in communion and contact with God. Let's pray. Father, right right here as we head into prayer and praise at the close of our service, move, keep us from vain repetition. God, I pray that you would open eyes in this place this morning. Whether we've walked with you for years or if we're just finding out about you or growing in our walk with you, wherever we are along the way, Father, give us eyes to see you for who you truly are. A God who so loved us that you sent your one and only Son into the world so that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. And that that faith then brings us into your family such that we can call out to you as Father. That the Ancient of Days, what an incredible thought. The one who spoke and everything came to being, we can call him Father. We can approach your throne boldly because of the work of Jesus Christ. Open our eyes to see you, that our joy in you be full. In Jesus' name.